Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Hello, fellow Americans. Hey there. It's the best Kennedy I have. It's a horrible Kennedy. <laughs> well, I never claimed it was any good. Is it like uh, Larry Kennedy? It was Bob. Bob Kennedy. There was a Bob Kennedy. He actually had an affair with Marilyn Monroe's sister. I don't know. I'm just making that up. Martha? There was no, no, there was no connection between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys. None. Either of them. None. <laughs> None. <laughs> He says, tongue-in-cheek while rolling his eyes so far into his head, he looked like he was uh, undead. I was a bobblehead doll for a second there. <laughs> so what happened? Anything exciting going on? Um, luckily, I lost no money whatsoever, but the first international podcast poker challenge uh, went off without a hitch, as far as I know. Not one hitch. Not one hitch, wow. except for me losing. <laughs> there was, a, um, I think, 132 or 138 entrants. Mm-hmm. And um, I went out in 83rd place. I was actually on the phone with John when he went all in with an ace five. <laughs> Is that, and then you had flopped the ace, right? Look, I, no, I didn't flop the ace. I was holding ace five. And, and then in the flop, you flopped another ace. You flopped a pair. Right. I flopped a pair of, I flopped a, an ace five. I'm sorry. Had the ace five. I flopped an ace. So I was thinking I was golden. So I'm all in. Bad beat. This is a bad <laughs> beat story. Guess what the other guy was holding? Oh, I know the answer. Tell us. An A6. Yeah. Yeah. And guess when he got his pair? His pair of aces? No, he got he got two pair actually cuz oh, he flopped okay. the aces as long as, you know, along with me. Right, yeah. So we essentially we were we were splitting it. He was just beating me on the 6. So, so he, he just had a high card. He had the the high kicker and then I was stuck thinking, well, geez, I can I'm going to get something. Something's got to come up, you know. I was hoping for a 5 on the river, a 6. So he had pair of aces, pair of six. Crushed me. Yeah. And then what that gets was me over. is I played that hand perfectly. You did? I did. I played the hand perfectly. He had no business re raising after I re raised him. Well, you raised a grand, right? After... I raised a grand, and, and there was nothing showing. He was just holding an ace six. That's you raised it. a grand before the flop, right? That's it's right. Yeah. So as John far as. was he... like the. He was just showing some authority there, right. saying in your face. And the entire time at that table, I was playing so conservatively. Anytime I put in a hundred bucks and I ended up showing, everyone saw that I had you great had a real hand. hand. Yeah. yeah, so I was playing really conservatively. And then as soon as I raised a thousand, I was thinking this guy's got to be folding He's because quaking, yeah, quivering in his boots. He had no business re-raising after that. Sorry, right. that's a bad beat story. I'm done. You know what's I'm like funny? Phil Helmuth here complaining that I got beat. <laughs> you, well, you got to degrade and make fun of the other people too. To no, be no, him. no. He he was lucky, <laughs> and that's the only reason why he won. You know, it's funny because there's that there's those bumper stickers that say, "What would Jesus do?" You know, and they're talking, of course, about I can't remember the that savior, guy's name. Jesus Christ. But what would Jesus do actually applies to poker too, since there's that one guy with the nickname Jesus. <laughs> I can't remember his name either. He wears a cowboy hat. 
And he looks a little like Jesus. <laughs> I'm yeah, thinking got, that's how we got the nickname. Well, he looks, I don't know, know if he looks like the actual Jesus. He looks like the paintings of Jesus that we've seen. The popular depictions of Jesus. Well, do we really know if there was a Jesus, what Jesus looks like? I, well, Jesus was a woman. <laughs> I think Jesus was a Hispanic guy. Yes, I think you're right. No, I think that recently someone has put together uh, like a depiction of what Jesus probably looked like if he came from where he supposedly came from and uh, probably would upset most of the people below the Bible belt <laughs> what he looked like. Very dark skinned. And he talked a lot like that. Oh, I can't remember his name. <laughs> Who's that Jewish comedian with a really irritating voice? He did the bird in one of the Disney animated films. Oh, uh, Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah, and he talks a lot like... I can't even do it. I don't even... <laughs> how does he talk? He's the Affleck do duck. Is he? Yes, he, he is. He does that too? Yeah. Affleck. Yeah. So other exciting stuff happened last week. Yeah, we had prior some fun. To, prior to your failure at the Poker Shandling. <laughs> well, and it has a, a, a gambling tie-in. It does? Oh, it does. It does. Yeah, we went to the Turning Stone Casino and saw... Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. I know some of you out there have heard of them. I know some of you out there have seen them. It was like my fourth or fifth time seeing them at the Turning Stone. And this was a great show. It was completely different than any of the other shows that I had seen. They have a new record out, so they played a ton of material off the new record. And I don't think I had heard one of the songs they played in Wednesday's show in any of the previous shows I had seen. So it was very fresh. Yeah, for me, it was the first time seeing them, and it was a great show. Great musicians, phenomenal musicians. Um, they have a, a great sense of humor, which is also great. And I'll say great one more time. Uh, Vic Wooten, great bass player. Victor, Victor Wooten. <laughs> yeah. My, my favorite part of the show, and I told Rich this as we were leaving was, um, uh, when he was just essentially, uh, playing with himself on stage. He was, he was doing his little solo. He has <laughs> yeah. one every show. Yeah. He, he did this solo, but it was not like a, a typical bass solo. He, he put a, a time delay device and, and built up a, a whole, bed of of uh sound and then he played over the top of that which was great and he was throwing in norwegian wood here and there so it was a very very cool thing to see and hear the last time i saw him or maybe two times ago he had two bass guitars out he had one on a stool just sitting on a stool like with the neck parallel to the ground and he was wearing one and he was using his left hand and hammering melody notes and using the fingers on his right hand and playing chord changes on the bass that was sitting on the stool. <laughs> using it like a keyboard. He's got more chops than any bass player in the world. The whole band is made up of world-class players. So whenever you go to see these guys, it's just something to behold. I remember I went to see, uh, the first time I went to see him at the Turning Stone, I went with my friend Mike. And after the Wooten solo, he just kept doing this, like mocking a hatchet on his hands. And my friend Mike is an amazing guitar player. And after seeing Wooten, he was just like, I quit. (laughs) I suck. This Wooten guy's just over the top. They're all great. Uh, I, um, the tone that Coffin gets out of his instruments is amazing. He's such a great sax player. Fleck has got so many interesting banjos to play and the guy just shreds and future man playing drums without a drum set is kind of cool too. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to say. I mean, all of the guys are great, but uh, again, I use the word great. All of those guys are just amazing, and and I was blown away. But I think Jeff Coffin um, probably was the, I don't know, the most expressive on stage. And to me, his playing was probably the best I've ever seen any saxophonist play. So. Mm-hmm. And we've actually played him on the show on two other occasions with the PBS band. 
mm-hmm. Coffin was playing flute in one of the tracks and sax on the other. And it's funny you should say that because this particular time, the band and Fleck in particular did more interacting with the audience than he normally does. He normally just sits up on, well, stands up on stage and like a machine plays his ass off and without a lot of expression and he doesn't talk into the mic a lot. He told a couple of stories this time about yeah. the songs that he wrote that one song called um, Who's Got Three? He told a story about how that his grandfather inspired that song. And compared to the previous shows, Fleck was like your brother in this one. I mean, he was so personal and outgoing and talking to the crowd and having fun with them. It was great because it's, it's nice when you can kind of interact a little more with the, with the musicians like that. Yeah, and it's a great venue, too. We were very close to the stage. And I don't think there's, like you said, I don't think there's a bad seat in the house. It's a small, intimate environment. It's um, called the showroom at the Turning Stone Casino. It's sort of like a little dinner theater almost mm-hmm. because you're seated at, everybody's seated at a table. Yep. And it's a, a venue that's designed from the ground up for sound and to sound good. And it's just a, it's a wonderful venue to see. How many people do you think fit in there at the most? 500? It was probably five, 600. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's full capacity and it, there's not a bad seat in the house and it's just an awesome place to see a show. Including waitresses. Yeah, the cocktail waitresses wearing their skimpy little costumes. You well, know. it is a casino. That's right. So we got a tune. Yes, we do. And uh, this is cool. I discovered this one on another podcast. There's a jazz podcast out there called Red Jazz. I think it's redjazz.com. And Corey runs that show. And this is a, a friend of his named Evan Stone. I believe he's the drummer in the band. And this track is called Grapes. And also, I think you can buy the uh, CD on the redjazz.com website, so definitely go there and check out the CD. But anyway, this one's called Grapes. Thank you. 
That's a pretty strong track. Very strong. Yeah, I really I like it. the unison playing between the guitar and the Hammond organ and the nice groove laid down by the drummer. That's just good stuff. I mentioned on the show before, anything with a Hammond organ is good in my book. Absolutely. So this is where we take our 20-minute intermission, so you'll have to <laughs> excuse us for a little while. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> I'll give you a topic. The internal combustion engine is neither internal nor combustion. <laughs> Peanut butter. <laughs> Just kidding. We had some room on the whiteboard where we outline our shows, so I actually wrote 20-minute intermission. But we're not going to have a 20-minute intermission. We're going to go into a... Uh, what are we going to do? Well, I saw a film. This is a rare occasion. And but It is a rare occasion. And this is something that I've been wanting to see for a while because I've been hearing a lot of great reviews about it. Um, it's called The History of Violence, a 2005 film by David Cronenberg. This is a film that... It, I don't think that it got a lot of press. It wasn't like one of those big, huge blockbuster films, but it got great reviews, uh, some notable reviews like Roger Ebert, who I always respect as a reviewer because he's um, he's got some great film instincts. He's got great film training. He's not just some hack off the street who likes to talk about film like us. He's he's a He's a great film historian, and at the same time, he doesn't just look at them as a filmmaker or, or a film historian. He looks at them as a, just a consumer. And if he has a good time in films, he'll, he'll say so. So he's thought really well of this film. But I have to say, with all that, I had a real huge problem with this film. Big time. And I went into it really wanting to love this film. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that we usually do. I'm not going to hack this film apart and say it was horrible. There were so many good things about it. But the, I think the, the biggest flaw was it was just way too gory and violent and more so than it had to be i actually haven't seen the film i've heard of it so i'm interested to hear more of what you have to say about it yeah i mean this the the basic storyline there's this guy who's living with his family in indiana um in a norman rockwell kind of village and uh he runs a diner and uh seems to have a great family life he's got teenage son and a small daughter and a great wife and one day these really nasty men go into his diner looking to to rob him. They're these drifters going through town and crazy psychopaths. They're also going to kill a woman and he defends everyone in his diner and ends up killing the two guys. Um, and then he becomes this town hero and, and the media picks up on it and he's, he's on, on the, the news wires and, and then a couple of days later, or a couple of days after he gets out of the hospital and he's working in his diner, these thugs show up. Um, one of them is Ed Harris. And this is a great cast, by the way. Um, Viggo Mortensen plays the lead. His wife is Maria Bello, who's great in The Cooler. Have you seen that? The Cooler. The Cooler. Oh, that was the uh, the film with um, Felicity Huffman's husband, whose name I can never remember. Well, he's a cooler, a guy who goes around casinos, like, cooling off gamblers mm-hmm. that are hot, and he... Uh, uh, Alec Baldwin had Alec Baldwin was crippled him earlier in his life with a polo mallet, I think. Mm-hmm. And so he walked. Yeah, I saw the cooler about a year and a half ago at the Munson Williams Proctor Arts <laughs> Institute. Yeah, that was that was an interesting film, and and uh, I'm not going to go into that one. Maybe we can talk about that later. Uh, but Ed Harris was in this, and he plays this this uh, made man, this this mob kind of guy, and he comes into the the diner with two of his henchmen. And he starts talking to this uh, Vigo Mortensen character and starts calling him Joey. And his name in, in the, the movie is not Joey. And he's like, I don't know who you're talking about. And he keeps saying that he's this guy. And he's like, you know, you've been in Philadelphia. And, you know, when you were in Philadelphia, you, you did this. And he's like, no, no, you've got me mistaken with someone else. And 
and it's just this weird, weird kind of interaction. And they, they tell the guys to leave and, and you get the sense that you don't know if this is the truth or not. I'm not giving anything away. As it turns out, he is this Joey guy who has this double life bunch of years ago, obviously before he started this family, probably at least 20 years ago, he, um, he moved to this town to get away from this life and started this, this whole other, uh, peaceful existence. And now it's sort of caught up with him. And the rest of the movie sort of follows on with this, um, you know, trying to, to expose him and, and, uh, him trying to hide this, this fact from his family, um, I think, first off, the the acting in this is amazing. I think everyone in this film does a, a great job, so I think it's worth seeing just for that. But every time there has to be some violent act, it seems like there has to be a, a, a violent act taken one step farther than it has to be. When he kills these guys in the diner, he actually they actually show the close-up of this guy's face who's blown off. Why do that? You don't have to do that. Well, that's been my complaint with a lot of Tarantino films. You know, he's, he's violent to the point of, of not having to be that violent, you know? I mean, everybody's well, a big Reservoir Dogs fan, and I'm not such a big fan of that movie. I think it was just a little too violent. Well, you see, even in Reservoir Dogs, the, the thing with that is if you were to look at that film frame by frame, you're not going to see anything. A lot of it is actually implied. You mo- you'll see blood, but you're not going to see a lot of the gore that you're seeing in this film. I mean, you're talking about body parts flying apart. Al Gore? Yeah, right. Leslie Gore. <laughs> Dipper. So, again, when they show these guys, these bad guys, like this little backstory before they come to the town and, and, and rob the joint, they show just how bad they are by the fact that they go into this hotel and they, to get away from the hotel, they kill the, the people behind the desk. But instead of just leaving it at that, where they kill the people behind the desk and there's blood everywhere, this little girl comes out who's probably the daughter of the maid or something, and she's whimpering, and they got to show her getting killed too. Why? You already know these guys are horrible. You already know it's an awful situation. Why bring it that much farther? To me, it's just pointless. So I think maybe it's just because I'm a parent. Could be. Apparently what? (laughs) That's the second time I've made that joke in the history of the show. (laughs) The show has history. So again, it's a great film. It just seems to be that Cronenberg takes it way over the top with some of the the actual close-ups of this violence and and some of these things and it's just I couldn't I couldn't watch it after that. Um I'll just mention some of the other people who are in it. Like I said, um Ed Harris plays this thug. William Hurt shows up near the end of it. He's great. Phenomenal. Um and then a new actor. He's a teenager. He plays the son of Viggo Mortensen. His name is Ashton Holmes and he plays probably the best role in this entire film. This witty, insecure teenager. Great film, or great great role to see in this film. Um, adds so much to it. So I, I think that I was really, really disappointed, and that's the only reason why I'm bringing this film up, and I think that you should see it so you can be disappointed too. So Dakota Fanning She's and Jake Gyllenhaal were not in it? <laughs> Neither of them were in this wow, film. Wow, that was no. a big year for both of them last yeah. year. Okay, I'll so have that's to it. <laughs> Do you still have it? Is this something you got through Netflix or whatever it is you got? Uh, I did, but I've already packaged it up and it's ready to go. So, What I've, was the film we've been waiting for you to watch? Nine Lives. Nine Lives. Did you see that yet? Yeah, I've only gotten through eight of them. For real? No. You haven't watched well, it? I haven't watched it yet. Okay, you still have it. Because I, I do want to talk about that film a little bit because that was another one of these films that was universally loved by all of the critics, made most of their top ten lists, and I kind of want to explore that film a little bit because there's nine independent, unique stories in there, and there's some yep. great, great, great performances. 
Yep. So uh, I'll I'll be sure to get to that one. <laughs> get to it, Mister. All right. Do we have another intermission now? Yes. Intermission two. You remember Amadeus? Uh, not personally. I never I never talked. You about saw that. the film though. I I did. That film had an intermission. Do you remember? I remember seeing that at the Uptown Theater in like 1984, and then they rolled an intermission, and I was like, "Wow, must be a long film." That's probably the last film that ever did have an intermission. I don't know if any other films have intermissions these days. It's kind of an old school thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of the older pictures, as they used to call them in that era, moving pictures had intermissions. But uh, anyway, they what had, do we? They had piano players in the front of the the proscenium. Some of them did. Mm-hmm. They've some played organ, some played piano. Hooray for Harold Lloyd. <laughs> anyway, we got another tune, don't we? Yeah, in, in the, the jazz theme as well. In the spirit of the last song, which had a lot of Hammond organ in it, these guys utilize a lot of Hammond organ too. It's the local guys. It's the uh, Devin Garamone band playing a track called Maps Blues. <laughs>
Another strong track. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Doesn't it feel good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. And uh, that song is actually not pod safe, but it's a local guy who gave me uh, permission to play it on our show. I'm sure he would give other people permission out there if somebody else wanted to play it. Uh, we'll link to the website. It's the Devin Garamone Band. Yeah, we played other stuff, and it's always good. That's the third track we played from them, and I think they have a new record out. Now, if not now, soon, and I'll have to get a copy of that from Devin and uh, play some more tracks. There's some great, uh, great players on there. Groovy. So on our media-heavy show, I have my uh, ubiquitous film review. Saw a movie uh, Friday night at the MWBNR, and um, this was a French film called Cash, Cachet, or Cash, if you're American, I guess. Or C-A-C-H-E. Yeah, spelled the same. Uh, it is a 2005 film, 121 minutes, directed by Michael Haneke, and he has been described as exquisitely sadistic, his directorial style. This film was really interesting. Uh, a lot of people left the film actually uh, unclear and not liking the film, but it's it's Hitchcockian in its... Um, <laughs> Can you say that in, on uh, a family show like this? <laughs> yeah. Hitchcockian. <laughs> <laughs> say it again. There he goes. <laughs> I know. Jeez, the censors, the, they're just scratching their heads and pushing buttons. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery with a little drama and tension and... And that kind of vibe mixed into it. The The film starts out with the establishing shot of a, a stationary camera looking down a street to an intersection, a T-intersection, where you have to make a left or a right. And we're looking at a house, and there's nothing going on. There's just birds tweeting, occasionally a car goes by, and occasionally a pedestrian walks by. And they stay on this establishing shot for a minute and a half, probably, <laughs> with nothing happening. It's a pretty bold way to start a movie, actually. And then... To the uh, audience's surprise, it rewinds. And we're actually seeing what two people watching a TV were seeing. And what that is is a videotape of their house that someone had taken to threaten them or scare them. And then they mailed them the videotape in the mail going, ooh, look at me. I taped your house. We're watching you. We're watching you. We don't know why. We don't know anything about anybody in this film yet. Well, actually, the woman, the wife, is played by Juliette Binoche, very famous French actress. Hi, last, time, last time I saw her was Chocolat. And the male lead, Georges, was played by Danielle O'Toole, A-U-T-E-U-I-L. They have a son, too, but his role is, is not that big in the film, although it does become large at the end. So they start getting a variety of these tapes in the mail, uh, more tapings of their house and they i mean they search the neighborhood they can't quite figure out where these things are being taped from they don't see any evidence of anybody taping them ever then the the tapes start getting accompanied by little children's drawings just awful simple drawings of like a head in a body with a bloody neck <laughs> that's a little threatening and then one tape comes which is not of their house and it's of somebody driving in a car with the camera mounted you know looking forward to a neighborhood, the car stops, the person holding the camera gets out and goes to an apartment, and you can actually see the number of the building. And with a little uh, 
careful observation. They rewind, they rewind the tape and were able to notice a street sign, and they did some homework, and they were able to go to this neighborhood and knock on a door, and the person behind the door ends up being someone, the lead character, the, the George character, had alluded to to his mother and his wife a little earlier in this film. The person who answers the door is someone he used to know in his childhood. It was a man that he knew as a boy growing up in the French countryside with his parents. It was the son of the Algerians who had worked for his family uh, as sort of help around the house. And now, of course, this wasn't a boy. This was a man. And they, they alluded to some history that Georges had been cruel to this to this boy and had ultimately caused um, him to not be at the house anymore. There's a variety of circumstances that go into it. But yet that doesn't seem to answer the questions of the videos. You know, he denies it. He seems sincere. Yet at the same time, you know that this guy's a little emotionally troubled and he's he's having issues. So we don't know what to think. And at one point in the film, their son disappears and they're, they're afraid he's been kidnapped. So they suspect this character, this Algerian character, whose name I don't recall, and, you know, they call the police. They had called the police, by the way, about these threats, but they're not overt enough to actually have something happen. I mean, I hear these stories with the U.S. police, too. You know, well, we can't actually do anything until they do something, you know, something more threatening than sending a videotape. Yep. So the police bring this Algerian and his son. He turns out he has a son, too, in for questioning, and nobody knows anything. And then, of course, the next day the son shows up, and he just stayed at a friend's house and forgot to call. That would pretty much deserve a beating. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be all sorts of torturing going on. And then a scene hap- uh, comes where the uh, person from his past calls him, the Algerian man, and says, you know, you need to come to my apartment. There's some things we got to work out. So the Georges character goes over there, and something that happens that actually makes the director's description of exquisitely, what was it? Sadistic. Exquisitely, exquisitely sadistic. Something happens that actually is appropriate to that title. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but something tragic. So now we still don't know what to think. Um, the film closes with a scene, and I'm not going to tell you what this scene is because then it would sort of be the giveaway for the whole film. The film closes with a very uh, one, one of those steady camera shots where we're looking at the son's school and the kids are filing out of school. And he ends up meeting someone, and this is all done in silence, and then the, you know with just the noise of kids walking out of school and birds in the background. And ultimately, this just leads us to have more questions than answers. So it was a very interesting film. I will say that the first hour and 15 minutes of this film, I was glued to the screen because they really didn't answer even the most basic of questions you have for a very long time in this film. But I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I still need to think about this film. I mean, I have some ideas about what was going on. I would really like to talk about these ideas with other people who've seen the film and see if they have the same inklings that I have about mm-hmm. this film. But it's definitely uh, an interesting film. It's worth seeing. I think you might like it. Um, if you're super sensitive to some kinds of violence, like John was talking about uh, before, you might not want to see it because it is there is a lot of stress. I mean, as a viewer, you are stressed watching this film. It does make some demands of you because, you know, this guy is being essentially, in a way, he's being threatened with these these notes and these drawings and these these videos that are being sent to him. But I, I would give it a thumb. <laughs> you would thumb it? I'm, I'm, I'm definitely thumbing it. <laughs> no, and, and I don't have necessarily a problem with films that are suspenseful or films that actually play with your psyche or play with your perceptions. Um, I do have a big problem with films, and I'm going to harp on this a little bit more. I do have problems with films that 
have to show you every single thing that they want you to see or think. I'd rather have the film suggest a lot and, you know, just like, uh, you know, the old adage that it's scarier or more alluring or tantalizing if, if some things are held back. Um, and and, in, and if, if a film is, is showing you way too much, it's essentially spoiling it. It's, it's, it's painting a picture. I mean, this is the, the criticism that people said about music videos, that they were essentially spoiling the music by putting the pictures in your head for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I can see that now. You know, it's the same thing that applies here. Um, and it sounds like the film that you saw does it really well. And the film that I saw took it one step too far. And it is a French film. It is subtitled. So if you're not a fan of having to read films, you know, you're probably not going <laughs> to like this one either. But I think it's worth seeing. It's an interesting exploration into this style of film. And I think uh, Michael Haneke, the director, did a great job. Anyway, And I'll say it one more time. It's uh, Hitchcockian. It is. It's Hitchcockian. <laughs> so that whole thing you said about film showing you too much being a bad thing, then you don't like porn then. So that's just out of the question. <laughs> As a film study? No. Because <laughs> no. they don't leave much to the imagination. You know, they really don't. No, no. And I don't like musicals for the same reason. Well, did you ever see that musical? What was that interesting musical that uh, Tom Cruise's ex-wife did? The um, uh, uh, Moulin Rouge? Moulin Rouge. Did you see that? To be I honest with you, good. I did see it, and, I, and that was a musical that I liked. Actually, you know what? Two musicals that I have liked. Oh, Oklahoma. No. No. That one, Moulin mm-hmm. Rouge mm-hmm. and West Side Story. Okay. Well, those are certainly classics. I've been meaning to see Moulin Rouge. I hear it's really good. So it was sort of a new take on on musicals. And I held out for a long time because of the whole mixture of, you know, the old style film and and old style imagery with the new music. I mean, they're playing new music in in the film. Um, I held off on it. And I said, you know, that's not going to work. It's just really not going to work. And it worked really well. I thought so. Cool. So I think that's a show. It's something. We don't know what it is or what it was. Some kind of show. You know, we always forget to say our names. This is Rich. <laughs> and this is not Rich. This is John. And you've been listening to Bloodthirsty Vegetarians. Brought to you by the letter C. Kellogg's. <laughs> no. We have no sponsor. Yet. Anyway, check us out on the web. www.bloodyveg.com Send us lots of goodness to feedback at bloodyveg.com. Lots and lots of goodness. Mm-hmm. We still haven't uh, got any re- new audio feedback in quite a while, so any of you out there who have access to a microphone and a computer and can record something, send us your wishes. Yeah, don't or be shy. some words. And remember, you're listening to V-I-B. V-I-B.